0: Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Excited to be with you all today with another new segment that we are introducing to the to the show, the Investors Roundtable. So I've assembled a group. I, I honestly don't think that uh, we could have a better group of investors to talk about the commercial real estate market and where we stand today. Uh, and honestly, I'm, I'm amazed that I was able to get all four of us uh, in a room at the same time. Uh, this group has syndicated hundreds of millions of dollars with the commercial real estate in various, uh, really, sectors of the market. Um, some of them are more local, and some of us are investing abroad as well. Uh, and by abroad, I mean out of state or out of city. But uh, we've got Dave Codre, Logan Freeman, and Brian Adams. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Dave, I'll let you kind of kick it off and uh, introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Excited to get this rolling today. Um... Run an investment shop down in Atlanta, Georgia, and really kind of diversified across a bunch of different asset types. And my spare time, pretty active adventure, taking my kids and going around the country, seeing what's happening. Glad to be here
2: Logan. I- Logan, yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. Always a pleasure to speak to you and your audience. And uh, we're a Midwest-focused um, a retail investment shop, and now, we're in Kansas City, Missouri. We've done multifamily. We have done a lot of multifamily. Um, that's been tough the last couple of months. And, and and I'll talk about, about why we made kind of a shift back into commercial real estate, the neighborhood retail uh, shopping center thesis. But we've added a little bit of Flex Industrial in there, too, following in, in Brian's footsteps. And and really, I, I think that, you know, Sam Zell said it best. He was a professional opportunist, Right. And I was kind of thinking about where we could find and exploit opportunity in, in at least our markets, and uh, our markets being Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. And really, where I bring any type of value to investors is being able to uh, go to the properties, see them, manage them, and uh, bring the deals. And I can't do that necessarily nationwide at this point with our scale. So. We, we decided to really focus in on three asset classes that we think have a strong future and we could actually go uh, find opportunities for investors and that's kind of where we've uh where we've fallen into uh, one other thing that I'll mention is we've been able to help uh, many folks on their 1031 exchanges uh, through our brokerage and uh, it's been a great uh, experience to uh, get to see the market from two perspectives. One, acquiring real estate, and then two, being the managing broker of our brokerage. And I know, Tyler, you're involved in that as well. And I do think it gives you a, a very unique perspective because when you're listing properties or going to acquire properties, you can one, see through some of the maybe marketing materials that you were previously given, and or you may be able to bring some relationships to the, to the table. So I'm here to learn just as much as everybody else and just share some experiences that I've had over the last you know, four or five years. Brian Yep, Yeah. Tyler, thanks so much for having
3: me. I'm, I'm in your backyard. So we have, uh, chewed a lot of the same dirt as they say. My wife is a native Nashvillian. Tyler and I have a lot of shared connections too much to get into on the show, but I appreciate you having me. I've been in the syndication business for 12 years now, so raising money um, on a deal-by-deal basis from accredited but non-institutional investors, and that's where I spend the majority of my time. I have a legacy firm that was focused on suburban office, and so we can get into what I think is happening with office, but my primary focus for the last five years has been light industrial, flex, and medical office, mostly in the Southeast, so um, the Sunbelt, Texas, Tennessee, Florida, Carolinas, Atlanta, and um, yeah appreciate you having me on and look forward to getting into it. Yeah, this is great. I'm I'm really excited to have everybody
0: in here because at some point I've learned a significant amount about commercial real estate investing and syndication from each of you and and y'all have all been invaluable sounding boards. So, um Logan, I, I want to touch on your point with the brokerage, you know, vertically integrating your commercial real estate firm, you know, Dave, I know you've definitely done this and and Brian, I think you have as well, you know, having those teams in-house that can help you one you know as as your in-house partners but also do third party work it's been it's been huge for us i mean i you know starting out my investment career i i was brokering deals even though i was buying deals back in 2019 i still brokered up until this past year and that was a huge cash flow you know uh, situation for me and to this day the brokerage is still a, a cash flow piece have y'all found that with your businesses does it serve you outside
2: of just your own interests Yeah, I'll go ahead and speak to that. I think that for us, it's a definitely competitive advantage. And the reason being is it it just keeps you on your game, Uh, frankly. You know, it's been a tough year for acquisitions, uh, comparatively speaking to other, you know, previous 12 months, right? So I think that just staying in the game and understanding what people are talking about and what lenders are actually playing uh, in the game and uh, what sellers and buyers are saying, uh, it really does direct the acquisition process for the private equity company but also you know let's let's be honest i mean if you're not acquiring properties um, as an acquisitions business it can be tough to ride out some of these storms which is why i'm so interested to see you know how many um, of these firms that we've seen uh, cr- been created the last couple of years really can because if you're not acquiring real estate the structure of a lot of these investments is to acquire and sell real estate and so you're acting as a broker in some sort of capacity whether or not you're owning the real estate or not and so for us it's been great to to keep the pulse on the market to stay in the game to understand what's going on and then it absolutely has brought us opportunities that we wouldn't otherwise have found through our networks and so i think it's extremely important to one stay in the game and stay stay sharp but two when you're not acquiring real estate you don't have to go do more deals just because you need to acquire real estate uh, to keep the lights on. So property management is not a big revenue center or or profit center, I would say, for for a lot of us, but it is definitely a competitive advantage. And then two, the brokerage side absolutely keeps the fees rolling, builds multiple relationships. Some of those folks turn into passive investors. Some of them turn into tenancy and common investors. Or if you're managing the asset and you know it really well and that seller wants to get out, guess who's going to get the first look? You are, and so I do think it does bring some scalability from that standpoint as well. Dave, Brian, y'all want to touch on that at all?
1: Yeah, sure. I you know, the syndication model or buying deals—you you never really want to be in a position where you have to buy a deal. Like that kind of stinks. You're like, man, I have to go buy something either keep the lights on or keep something moving. So anytime you're, you can uh, have multiple streams of not only revenue, but things that you're doing with your team. So there's always a more creative way to look at look at a problem and, then, hey, the only thing we can do is go buy something to, to keep the machine going. You now, We don't do the brokerage side, but we do plenty of the property management side. We do a good amount of internal leasing. We do a lot of CapEx work. So there's all sorts of different parts of it that you could choose to tackle. Just got to make sure you have the right people and the right team to say, hey, I'm going to do the brokerage side or I'm going to do the CapEx side uh, to kind of bolt on onto your project. And another thing we're looking at too is just by doing that stuff, it kind of like narrows your performance gap, right? So you don't have like big swings up and down in one area, whether that's just the timeline of a CapEx project or the timeline of a brokerage sale, you bring some of that stuff in house, or you at least get your feet wet with some of it. You know, you can, you know, you can narrow your margin of uh, up and down there. That's why That's why we're doing a lot of the in-house stuff as well.
0: Yeah, that's great.
3: Brian, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, just kind of some commentary. I I think everything that the guy said is completely true in terms of how it can be accretive to your business and it can actually be a really good revenue source during challenging times. I, I think getting a layer deeper, if you're a GP or a real estate entrepreneur trying to get into this business, You really should take a step back and think, okay, what kind of business do I want to be in? You know, I want to be a sponsor and a GP and private equity. I also want to have internal property management and be vertically integrated. And I want brokerage, which means you're going to get into the third party world, right? All those things are fine. What I would say is you should listen to people like Logan and, and, you know, others who have been doing this for a while. And really understand the pros and cons and make a conscious choice that you want to be in that type of business, as opposed to just saying, oh, I'm going to try to capture some fees. I'm going to try to get some revenue here. I'm going to try to take all the pieces of the pie that are involved in the acquisition. And then the other side is as an LP, if you're an investor, you know, thinking about allocating towards a sponsor, these are really good questions to ask, right? Like what other parts of the business do you have? How does revenue share work? How many partners do you have? Are you looking to grow that business organically? Are you buying up books? These are really well-informed, like beyond just kind of preliminary questions and diligence to get into people's business model. Uh, So I don't think it's kind of right, wrong, or indifferent, but they're great questions to ask that usually people don't don't really think much on either as an entrepreneur or as an investor. Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly going to create more headache, right,
0: for you as the general partner if you're gonna be vertically integrating. I mean, you know, property management was the first additional business that I added to my portfolio. And man, I gotta be honest with you, for the first two, three, four years of owning that company, it was miserable because we weren't at scale enough for me to not have to deal with it. We finally hit that within the last six months to where it's not an everyday thing for me. It's basically a once a week deal now. But man, you think about how much of a distraction that can be. Right. I mean, if you're if you're trying to buy deals, uh, you know, getting called to deal with property management issues is not accretive to that.
2: I have a yeah, I'll, I few things to add after Brian. Brian, go ahead.
3: Well, no, if you're if you're in multifamily like you guys are, I think being vertically integrated and having property management is like table stakes and makes a ton of sense and it's a really good business to be in. If you're doing triple net... 15 year lease, your retail deals, is it just a fee grab? Like, I don't know, maybe, There's not a whole lot to do. So I don't think it's as simple as like, yes or no. It's we have to get a little bit more educated, Um,
2: but yeah. Yeah, I think what Brian said, what kind of organization do you want to to be is extremely important because uh, Tyler, you and I, and Dave, I don't know if you did or not, but you and I grew up in the brokerage world. So that's what we knew, right? That's how we entered into this business. Uh, not necessarily the property management world, but we we worked alongside multiple property ma- companies because we had to make referrals for our clients. Um, but now we made the, the not just decision to grow that grow into that type of organization. And so having that when you're not doing new deals also allows you to retain talent, which I think is extremely important for a team. I always think about enterprise value, right? Because we started with three people and now we have. 30 plus. And so it's enterprise value. What am I actually creating? It's the systems, it's the processes, it's the technology, but I can't do it all when you have all of those different, you know, portions of your business. And so if you can grab great talent, you can train them the right way, you can build a better organization. I think that's a really important, you know, aspect to remember as we're looking to continue to grow and and, and develop all of the competitive, you know, uniques uh, as as some companies would call it. Is, is for us to, to to develop talent over the long haul. And I think that's ex- extremely important. But your entry into the business, I think also has a really big you know, impact on if you do those types of businesses or not. Because it I was natural for me because I, I started as a broker and just didn't want to stop doing that because I frankly loved it and then found some great talent to retain and have been developing that talent since. And that's kind of the same way we've done the property management side as well
1: yeah Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add there? i the building the team part is always interesting, right? Like who's gonna go and what part of it? I mean, are you guys using different personality tests or profiles, or how are you figuring out you know who's gonna be the best fit in this part of the business versus the other side? because in our in our shop, you know they're kind of separate functions within each one. They've got separate books and financials on how they're performing um, because an lP investor isn't necessarily invested in your broker shop. They're investing in how that deal is doing. And in the brokerage shop, the property management, construction, they've all got to maintain performance with what's commercially available in the market, right? So they got to perform to market standards and hopefully better uh, to perform well. So it's like, what, what kind of avenues are you guys looking at to fill those team members and make sure you've got the best team out there, knowing none of us have like hundreds and hundreds of people that are on a team, right? We're pretty lean operations.
3: Tyler, I'd like to make one more comment. I think oftentimes people who start these GP sponsor syndication firms, <clears throat> they start with the firm that they want to create as opposed to the one servicing the LPs they want to work with. And a lot of this conversation about structure, different arms and branches of the business is going to be dictated by what LPs you work with, right? If you're working with institutional pension plans and endowments and insurance companies, they're going to expect certain structures. Certain things are going to be kosher to them, and some things are not, right, in terms of disclosing uh, fees or, you know, different, uh, you know, structures in terms of being vertically integrated, they're going to be expected or not. Meanwhile, if you're working with individuals and families, you know, they may not care as much, right? They may be focused on different parts. So, I think you should start from the back and work your way forward if you really wanna build a good GP sponsor platform and focus more on the LPs you wanna work with and dictating, that will dictate the structure of what everything else looks like.
0: Yeah, I think that's completely true, right? I mean, you you look at the way that I've built my firm, for better or worse, it's mostly friends and family. I mean, we do almost all 506B syndications and while that was great, and we'll definitely get into this today because I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up, you know, it, it's great having those investors that are willing to, on average, write a $94,000 check per deal. But then you think about what a $4 million, $5 million capital raise looks like, and you're you're running your head through walls. But my company was basically designed for that friends and family model where they all care that I have my hands on every aspect of the deal because they know I can trust me. Whereas that doesn't really scale for necessarily, I mean, it might for a family office, but institutional capital, absolutely not. If, if I was going to go buy an apartment complex, they're going to say, you can't have your management company do this. Graystar is coming in. They're going to handle it. They manage tens of thousands of units. So I, I, I agree with them.
2: Yeah, a so, few of the assessments that we have used that I think are very helpful. And I'm in a group here uh, with a bunch of uh, much more experienced uh, CEOs. That I, and I know Brian's involved in, in them, so they probably speak to these a lot. But uh, cult, the culture assessment is definitely one that um, is, is widely used. Um, it takes a lot of knowledge from your, from your standpoint. You have to really dive into understanding it. Easier ones to maybe understand are strength finders. It uh, doesn't really necessarily tell you where they should be at, um, but then we also use uh, Ray Dalio's Principles yes. View, which I like a lot. It's free, and, and he's done a lot of work with Adam Grant uh, on that uh, on that assessment. Uh, that being said, you absolutely do find that folks will will you know be a better fit in one position than the other, and we've done a lot of moving around through those organizations. But the way that we have structured them is they're different companies, so. Uh, and the only thing that we do from a third party standpoint, I need to, to mention is brokerage. So uh, we don't manage other people's properties. We don't do construction or CapEx for anybody else. Uh, it's just, hey, if you want to sell or you want to buy a property, we can help you find that. And the brokerage really doesn't really talk to the private equity or the commercial real estate um, you know, property management business. So uh, I think that's important to know too, is you, know, you can do this for yourself or you could try to scale a business for a third party, but each one of those decisions have different ramifications because managing a third-party client on a, or, on a management basis is a lot different than managing your own assets from a compliance standpoint and from an expectation standpoint. That's
0: right. And if you're sitting there wondering, you know, what does this have to do with the commercial real estate market update? I'm going to loop it back because, you know, over the last two, three years, I mean, really, let's say the last 10 years, just about anybody could go out and syndicate a deal and be successful and make a significant amount of money through acquisition fees and and whatnot going through this process. And now, you know, people are starting to down the hatches. You know, most every uh, investor that I've been talking to, they're not buying deals right now. And so if you have a model where all you do is buy deals and that's the only way that you get paid, it's going to be a rough couple of years. And so, you know, we've been doing a lot of reflection in-house on our assets of, what are we going to do now? Because you know, a lot of what I do is heavy value add ground up development. Well, lenders don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole right now. And I'm not going to go out and raise a hundred percent equity or even 50% equity for these deals, because that's, that's tough to pull off. So, you know, we're looking at what are those alternatives that we have? And, and honestly, I mean, I think the best conclusion I've come to is to acquire businesses and vertically integrate? I know that's a complete left turn from real estate, or at least partially so, but we've got a property management company. Why don't we go buy an HVAC company? Because we have 2.1 million square feet of commercial real estate that we're managing. How can we increase our cash flow in other ways to really protect ourselves through this downturn and, and keep the lights on? So are you guys, you know, a lot has changed in the last 12 months. I mean, we're almost coming up right on 12 months when interest rates really started hiking up. How have y'all changed your strategy and and what's kind of your your outlook moving forward for the next couple of years?
2: I'll I'll take that and I'll let Brian <laughs> uh, finish it off because I'm very interested to hear his perspective. But I'll just touch on one thing. Um, is I think that what we have done is really taken a very close look at what can be automated and systemized in our in our in our business. And it's not because I don't want to employ people, it's because artificial intelligence is changing the game. And it, if I fall behind on that, then I'm going to lose. And so we have spent a decent amount of time uh, either outsourcing routine tasks. Um, and a prime example is, all right, we get the T12, the rent rolls, all of that. We send that out to a third party. We've coached them on our underwriting model. First draft comes back from them then our associate uh, analyst goes in, then our director of you know acquisitions goes in, and then it comes to investment committee. It used to just be us three just doing that. So that is saving you know, 20, 30, 40 hours a week just looking at deals. So that's one way that we've done this. And the other way is on the management side, there's so many great companies now that have artificial intelligence that allow you to um, really be on all the time. And I love these things from uh, Naval Ravikant. If you guys uh, have, have spent any time with him, he's all about leverage. What lever can I put in place? So one example of this is uh, I run a leasing team on a residential property management company. And the lever that I installed 60 days ago allows for you know prospective tenants to or residents to uh, reach out to our team, our team, it's AI, at any given time and understand what the availability is, what the fees are, what what the property looks like, where it's located, ask all of these questions. And I'm getting data in now that about 90% of the conversations that I was previously not having with prospective tenants are happening after hours or on the weekends. So those are just a couple of levers that I think are extremely important. And I think that you need to watch, especially as JLL rolls out the first GPT model for commercial real estate here more, more recently, how are we, you know, as sponsors and owners utilizing that technology to create better returns for our investors. And the reason I I say that is really freeing up more time for everybody on this call to do what they're best at. And so they, that everything else can be done to a certain extent. So I just wanna say that that's kind of been a huge shift for us the last 12 months is really trying to figure out ways that we can utilize these technologies and implement them in a regular basis to supercharge what we're actually doing on a day-to-day basis.
3: Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of take it and run with it before I hand it off to Dave. First on the deal side, for a long time, it was a really good business to buy decent cap rate deals with in-place cash flow and put cheap debt on them, capture that arbitrage and give that yield to the investors. LPs were super happy. They were getting a 300, 400 basis point premium over the 10 year. They were looking for yield. You could push through that depreciation, hopefully sell some stuff at a profit, which a great business. That business is now gone. And for the first time in a long time since I've been doing this, there are viable alternatives to people in that you know they don't need to invest in real estate. They can get 5% in a T-bill right so you've got to change your business model so I love being a sponsor as I can pivot so now we're looking for more deep value add irr driven shorter duration type properties which i think lends itself well to today's environment in terms of i think there will be opportunities that come across there but you have to be responsive to what your lps want and again it's all about solving a problem for them and giving them 6 or 7% is not really solving a problem for them today so we're trying to Kind of go back to what we were doing initially, which is more of this deep value add opportunistic type acquisition. So that's kind of on the deal side. On the business side, this is the third time that I've been through one of these things, right? 2008, COVID, and now this, when things are slow. And I think Logan's exactly right. And Tyler, you mentioned this. For the last five years, deal shops have been doing deals. And people have been very focused on that position, rightfully so. I think they made a lot of sense. When things slow down, people tend to make really poor choices when they have that much time on their hands. And so what I've found success with is kind of what Logan was saying. I choose a part of the business that I think needs to be addressed, that we put on the back burner, and we I go really deep into putting together systems and processes and documented Organizations internally, where we can kind of take it to that next level. So, for us, it's social media. We're going to different channels, different platforms. We were working with a third party marketing group. We've internalized that now. And we've got some really great kind of virtual assistants that are in the Philippines helping us to kind of take the content we're creating and migrate it across different platforms in a very efficient, repeatable manner. And so that's where we're going to be spending the next, I think, three to four months, frankly, before hopefully rates start going down. So you've got to get the team focused on something else. And you've got to keep you know, working on different parts of your business. But you have to be realistic. Last year, we did nine acquisitions. I think we'd be pretty happy if we did four to five this year. That's just the reality of where we are. And so that's kind of how we're thinking things on kind of a deal level and then a business level.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that, you know, velocity of deals is maybe half. If we do half as much this year, it's like, that sounds like we did pretty well this year compared to previous years. And that time is, you know, whether it's better leverage or better efficiency in your business, but how do you just improve operations and continually make them better? And that's really going to separate, I know, what deals perform well going forwards over the next, maybe rates are high for three months, maybe they're high for three years. But whatever that time frame is, finding ways to incrementally improve the business is going to pay like exponential dividends long term. So it's it's interesting. Look, you're doing the AI stuff and different chat bots that can help, you know, add leverage to a leasing team. We're trying to look at like remote access and cameras, so people can see more what's going on at different locations without necessarily having to be there 24/7 or all the time or paying for offsite security. You know, a lot of that stuff adds up and starts eating away at your operating costs uh, over time. It's like there's got to be a technology way to make stuff more efficient. So now, with half the deal flow, it's like probably a good amount of time to go seek out those solutions and implement them now. Tyler,
3: I'll make a prognostication here. I think the only worse business to be in than real estate is venture. I have some very legitimate venture people that tell me that they think that north of 55, percent of all venture-backed companies and venture funds will be gonzo in the next 24 months. I think, directionally, that's probably the same for a lot of these fundless-sponsored fundless sponsor syndicators. I think 50% or north of them will be gone in the next 36 months. As these I.O. periods burn off, asset management becomes a real challenge and they can't refinance or they can't sell. I think there'll be a big washout, which is just a really good opportunity for folks that have a good foundation and a really good business to take advantage of that fallout. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think... Oh, go ahead, Logan.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, No, none, none of us really set the table of where, how we got here, right? Like, how do we get here? Well, uh, let's go back to uh, pre-COVID when the Green Street Property Price Index was right around 134. This is just indices that covers all major food groups of the asset types, okay? Uh, We, during COVID, so I think it was probably April to October of that year, if I can remember right, it troughed down about 120. Ever since when the debt was super cheap, we skyrocketed all the way back almost to 160, which was the highest level of all time in commercial real estate prices. Since then, we've seen the fastest and, and largest rate hike in history. And so we are back down to pre-COVID levels of, of the on the indices. But what's different? Well, what's different is there's a massive buyer-seller gap still because of investor psychology. And Howard Marks talks about this at lengths in all of his books. That takes time to get through the industry, especially in the commercial real estate industry. And so you have sellers that are still wanting to sell at a four cap and you have buyers wanting to try to make a deal pencil because they need to do a deal and there's there's a bridge or there's a gap and that gap is is still pretty large it's going to be for quite some time but for intrinsic value investors this is what brian was talking about he's looking for intrinsic value of the of the property what what can i get it for now what can it be from a cash flow standpoint later if i actually force appreciation that's that's what you have to do now. So it's no longer lipstick on the pig, flip that apartment complex or that property and you get a you know the, the greater fool's theory and somebody buys it for a higher price. And so you really have to understand location. You have to understand construction. You have to understand what Dave's talking about when he's talking about cameras and security, because that is what makes real estate deals better, is actually doing that type of work. It's not the sexy stuff. It's not going in and putting granite countertops in and flipping the thing. It's really understanding the location Who's actually going to drive revenue at the at the location, whether it be a, a commercial real estate asset or multifamily? How do we then go execute that on a regular basis to actually force more NOI and not worry about a cap rate right now because that's that's done? So let's get to cash flowing and and really buy at a good basis. And I think that that's extremely important. And so when I look at real estate deals now, I you know being negatively leveraged unless it's a deep value add deal is very tough. And I think that one, the investor psychology from sellers and buyers is at hand, but it's also with your LPs. So, you know, the 15% IRR deals or whatever it was, 20% IRR deals day one or whatever people were showing, um, you know, that's, that's going to be tough. And so it's a different, it's a different pitch. It's a different uh, perspective, but it's, it's not different than history, historical. It's just different than the last 10 years. And so Peter Lindemann, Dr. Peter Lindemann, I think said it great on Willie Walker's podcast. If you have capital and you have courage when others don't and you have a long-term perspective in this business, you're going to be okay. But that's a difficult proposition to then translate and communicate to LP investors in today's environment. So that's kind of where you're, you're where the industry is at. It's all it's in flux, right? It's in flux. Now, Brookfield's asset manager comes out you know, today or yesterday, whenever, and said he thinks the best buying opportunity is coming. And I've been studying uh, Phil Anderson's book, The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. I've been studying um, Mastering the Market Cycles from Howard Marks. I think it's very important for younger sponsors, especially like myself, who have not been through the GFC or even previous to that, to understand that history doesn't often repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And that's important to keep a perspective. So that's kind of my take on the market right now, but I love hearing that we're talking about true things that you can do at properties to force uh you know appreciation through either resident or tenant retention or getting new residents at those places or tenants because that's what it's going to take to be successful here in the future well the groups
0: that are going to survive this are the ones that are actual professional real estate investors right i mean we we've, we've seen so much over the last especially 3 years you know private equity firms or you know hedge funds that Hadn't necessarily focused in certain sectors of real estate for a while, suddenly jumping into these other new ventures because they had more cash than sense. And that's it now is a very difficult time to do that. I mean, the amount of people that I know in the multifamily world alone that were buying assets with an adjustable rate mortgage in 21 and 22 is mind boggling because I, I don't know a time in the United States where buying commercial real estate on an adjustable rate mortgage was ever a good idea. Especially when you know that we've had the lowest interest rates in history for the longest time, so I think that I think you're right. I mean, it's there's going to be a huge buying opportunity coming up, and so you know, while it's it's easy to get frustrated with how the market's been over the last couple of years with everything getting so expensive, there's going to be a lot of really good buying opportunities coming up.
2: Yeah. And I would just say that um, if you haven't read that book, you don't need to read that book. Reach out to me. I will give you, I will send everybody here a summary of that book. So it's a big thick one. And if you don't like history, don't read it, but it was highly interesting to me. Um, but I put a five to six page report together for my team, for my brokerage team, and for our our director of acquisitions. Um, and I'm not saying that there's an 18.6 property cycle, year property cycle, but it's very interesting to read about and Learn about and uh, Dalio has has ingrained in my mind that we need to study history to understand the future. Uh, but there are guys like Mark Moss out there that you know also are mentioning. Well, technology is here, and that is something we have to to take into account as well. But uh, happy to share that little report that has some really cool graphs and things on it with uh, anybody here, so you guys can take a look at it. It was it was uh, eye opening for me.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Logan, if you want to send that to me, I can uh, put a link to your website um, or to wherever you have that hosted um, in the YouTube description. Dave, I want to hear from you what kind of what's going on in your world, because, you know, you guys, I met you, first met you like six or seven years ago. Y'all were, y'all were doing a lot of value add multifamily. I mean, kind of the quintessential uh, like syndication story, right? Like you guys have grown that pretty significantly and, you know, the market started to shift And y'all started exploring commercial real estate and you've since kind of grown that. So talk about that journey.
1: You know, thinking about that, Ron, it's definitely the entrepreneurial opportunistic. Like where can you find some opportunity? Knowing, you know, we started really in the property management side, not on the brokerage side. So we started operating. We haven't bought an apartment deal since like 2019, probably. Because even at that point, we're saying, man, this looks a little frothy. We're probably a little bit early. We definitely left some money on the table on that front. But, you know, over the past couple of years, we've been finding great opportunities. Medical, there were some good spreads above cap rate to debt in medical. That's kind of been eroded over the past. You know, everything kind of got eroded with the uh, cap rates going up. And, you know, we've bought a lot of net lease deals as well and not stuff in like the, you know, there were Starbucks on on the four caps, which is mind boggling. But even with rates going up now, deals are still transacting at like a seven cap, which isn't crazy on the net lease front. So we've been able to buy shorter term net lease deals and sell them with longer leases and still get a good cap rate spread. So there's always something out there. There's some kind of opportunity uh, that's in real estate. It just takes a little bit of digging to go find out what it is. Right now, we're we're bullish on office. Now I don't know if there's a lot of people that are out there saying, hey, we want to go find some office space, but we're buying a deal right now that's bacon office we're getting at a great price point point that we're optimistic about we're going to convert it so we feel like it's a good spot you know I'm not sure where the future of office is going to go as a whole but this is like Suburban single story ground stuff not urban high-rise that's a whole different that's a whole different planet from where we operate
0: yeah, we're going to have a contractor on the show on Wednesday to talk about what it actually looks like to convert office into multifamily, because we have been getting that question a lot, and I don't think that it's nearly as easy or as simple of an answer as, hey, just turn it into apartments, because it doesn't really work like that with all the utilities and everything, but that'll be a, uh, an interesting conversation for that. Brian, I mean, you've got a background in office space, and now you've you've kind of pivoted into into some medical and some flex, so let's, let's kind of hear about your opinion on on the office environment and and why you've moved into the industries that you've moved into.
2: Before Brian speaks, I want to, I want to say something. This man right here, he's, he's on this, this side of me on the screen. Then I sent him a deal, an office deal, I don't know, 16 months ago. He texts me back and says, the days of buying office from a perf, you know, price per pound you know, square foot basis is over. I'm not doing it anymore. And I walked from that deal. So I just, I just want to make sure, and it was not a conversion; it was a true office suburban deal. So my office guy that I text sends that back to me. I say, "Yeah, absolutely, I'm going to listen to him." So I just wanted to hype him up just a little bit before he gets locked.
3: Well, I hope that deal didn't turn out to be some kind of home run thing, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) and and I don't want to cast aspersions on Dave's deal. Like every deal stands on its own, obviously, and I can only speak to to my experience, but in today's environment, I think driving NOI is the key, right? And it's really hard to do in multifamily. It's really hard to do in stabilized retail. It's really hard to do in self-storage. One of the few places that you can do it is in medical, I think, um, off-campus multi-tenant medical office, and then light industrial flex. And, And we don't need to get into the rationale behind that. But that's why we pivoted to those assets. And in this type of interest rate environment, I think you need to be able to drive NOI to create value for your LPs. And that's kind of where we've gone to. In terms of office and what Logan was alluding to, I bought a lot of office, probably $250 million worth of of office over the last 10 years. It can be a value trap. Right, You can go into a world where you say, I'm buying this thing at $65 a square foot, and that's at a huge discount to replacement cost. New construction is going to cost me $300, $400, $500, $600 a square foot, whatever number you want to put on it, and this is a great deal. The challenge is, again, if you go back to NOI growth, after tenant improvement dollars, after leasing commissions after your operating expenses, after modified gross leases and all of that cam exposure, it's really hard to drive NOI over a long period of time. It's not to say that it's impossible. It's just really challenging, I think, because especially multi-tenant tower deals, right? if it's two, three stories, elevators crush you, your lobby crushes you, your parking lot crushes you, roof, HVAC, foundation. It eats into your cash flow pretty considerably. So I think it's a really good time to do development, frankly. It's probably a really good time to take down some of these traditional offices and make them more flex oriented. If it's single story, that's great. The reason we got to light industrial flex is because it's all the things that office isn't, they're single story. They're triple net they're separately metered they have no common area exposure right so tenants are responsible for hvac the only things i really need to worry about are the roof and the parking lot and so in terms of office as a fundamental investment class i think it's pretty challenging right now and even if you can get super cheap i want to hear the story about how you're going to create long-term value there because the challenge too for suburban and again, I mostly played in the Southeast and the Midwest. If you take a market like Kansas City, and this is what I told Logan, Kansas City is a great market. We own a ton of assets there. I go there a couple of times a year. I love my homes. It's a great place. <laughs> suburban rents, rents for suburban in what's qualified as class A, which at this point can be 20 or 30 year vintage properties, can be class A. Real rents have pen plateaued for 20 to 25 years. They've been stuck within range bound of 25 to 30 bucks a square foot on a modified gross basis longer than I've been doing this, right? For 25 years. And so it's really hard to juice that IRR if that's just gonna be where you end up. And so I think it's just gonna be really challenging for some of this legacy Class A, Class B, suburban office. I know a lot of opportunistic funds that are out there raising capital right now saying they could take down these deals. More power to them. I hope they're really successful. I just don't see the fundamentals working
0: really well right now. All right, yeah. I'm going to gonna, I'm gonna let you, Dave, I'm going to let you defend yourself here in a second. I will say- but I wasn't I, attacking Dave's deal. <laughs> <about> Dave's deal. <laughs> no, no, I know. <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, I, I completely agree with the office assessment from you, Brian. I mean, I think 90, 80, 90% of the market is gonna have a really hard time. You know, I mean, especially like downtown class A office space, I I don't see how that makes a comeback. A lot of those companies have the capability and um, I guess probably the desire to, and and management abilities to have remote employees. A lot of small businesses don't though. And that's where, I mean, I don't have a big office portfolio. I've got, you know, 50,000 square feet of office space. So it's not that much. but it's it's class b minus class c plus it's located within neighborhoods um, they're smaller buildings and they have smaller spaces in them that kind of cater perfectly to smaller businesses and we've actually seen our occupancy rates and rental rates go up um, in the past few years um, pretty strongly which has been nice but you look at the nashville office market fundamentals we're like a huge exception. But I think there is something to be said there for focusing on more entrepreneurial small businesses instead of going towards these bigger floor plates, focusing on 50 plus employee companies. But Dave, tell us a little bit more about your deal.
1: I mean, this is, this will probably be like the 10th one of these that we've done now. And it's just taking office that's not being used and taken out of the pool, right? So we're office our submarkets maybe it's like 75% occupied roughly and we can take a single story one and just convert it to flex and as long as it's like 5 to 10,000 square feet that stuff's leasing super quick i mean flex is probably 97% occupied i would say that's just in any of the markets we're operating in the southeast even ones we're not in right like in the southeast it's pretty occupied so right now it's kind of it seems like the easiest quick play of saying hey we're going to take office We're going to, as long as it functions as single story with roll-up doors and it can work and you can get it to a a flex user, a a smaller user, not a 50,000 square foot, 100,000 square foot floor plate. That stuff's, that's a whole different ballgame. But as long as we can do that, we feel confident we can take office pretty quickly and get it in from a essentially unused asset to a used asset. Our Flex rates—the stuff we're looking at in North Atlanta is around twelve dollars a square foot net, and um, the office building we're buying—it's—it's it's got about thirty-five percent tenants left, and they're paying around fourteen, you know, for office space, and it's a modified, complicated lease that's there. So we've got some—you know—they don't—they don't necessarily leave right away, so they've got some time left on their leases. But yeah. I think that's—I mean, I think it's an opportunity to to find those. But there's still a ton of office and I don't know, I don't know what's gonna happen with that stuff. I
3: don't know. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Dave, that's a story that totally resonates with me. We're under LOI on a deal in Marietta, similar profile. And I think it makes all the world of sense. But what Tyler's talking about, which is really scary, and this is where it's kind of weird. I think credit actually works against you in this environment. If you look at what's happening in downtown Nashville, you know, we have one of the best sexiest, most dynamic commercial real estate markets in the world. And our class B office for CBD, like downtown, probably 50% occupied today. And you've got the pinnacle building, which used to be a class A tower owned by, you know, one of the best office REITs in America. It's going to be 45% occupied in Q4. And I just don't see the story of how you backfill that when you have brand new double a, whatever b s marketing brokers throw out there for like brand new <laughs> double A. To... this is the kind of thing you hear, right? So like, yeah, you've got brand new Heinz product or whatever coming out of the ground and they're getting crazy rents, all these amenities, and it's beautiful. That story makes a lot of sense to me, but backfilling some of these some of these older kind of class B tower deals, I think it's a nightmare. And like, I don't see how it ends. Another point I'll make, which is very frustrating for people. and know we're not going to try to get political on the show. You can't look at me with a straight face and say that when state, local and federal government says don't go to office for two years. And then they turn around, they say, yeah, good luck landlords, like have fun with it. That's just unfair. Like That's a market manipulation. Nobody's really talking about it. I'm not saying we need a bailout fund or TARP 3.0, but it's it's just fundamentally unfair to a lot of these landlords when they were dealt that card because it has this huge ripple effect that we're still digesting when you have government authorities manipulating yeah. your assets.
1: I I think an earlier point you made too, just the actual cost of office per square foot, it's pretty heavy. Once you're in with uh, on, on a multi-story, bigger building, so you can't just necessarily tear it down and wipe all that equity out and say, "Hey, we're going to build anything else here." It's it's a big number that's in a lot of the a lot of the even a Class B, multi-story. You know, not super nice, not super sexy. The basis is still pretty high that you can't just immediately shift gears and tear it down or convert it to something else. So. But something's going to happen. Ha- right ca- cap capital calls, capital calls, capital calls. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I it wiped that. out. It wiped out almost an entire sector. I mean, it's kind of wild to think about. I mean, would we have gotten here at some point, probably, right with technology? But it would have phased out over time instead of all happening so quickly. And and it's it's interesting to watch. I mean, Brian, I, I do think that uh, you and I should put an offering memorandum together and go buy the pinnacle building and turn it into a twenty nine <laughs> floor honky tonk. I think it would crush it.
1: <laughs> Brian, I understand. <be laughs> <innocent. laughs> If you still have suburban office, like we, we own some suburban office that's still office. And we've had pretty good leasing with people leaving a high-end urban location and taking like 25% as much square footage. Being a little suburban, they come in a couple of times and they're saving, you know, they were paying $45 a square foot and now they're paying 12. And they're like, hey, this is great. I'll use it when I need it.
3: Yeah, I, and I think, you know, Logan pointed this out um or, or Dave you did but these three to five thousand square foot spaces they'll they'll fill like people want them they need them it's very hard right hopefully you can get away with not doing too much TI work on them the things that kill you are the 25 or the 50 thousand square foot floor plates they just murder you because in these markets if it's Suburban and it's not a super dynamic growing market which for office today, there aren't really many of them left in America. It's just musical chairs and every tenant brokered rep knows which assets are rolling and which availability is coming. And so it's a downward spiral, right? And you're, you're, you're negotiating against yourself, which is part of the reason that you can't push rate is because when rates go low every market has three developers that are wild west cowboy guys that will throw up 300 400 thousand square foot spec and steal those tenants and it's like a pernicious cycle that you cannot get out from and it's really hard that's why office is a really challenging asset class
0: well guys this has been a great conversation i mean let's let's leave the audience with this i mean what's your outlook over the next 12 months what do you think is going to happen in the market Or what are you looking to do?
1: I think it goes back to our part of our conversation that was just around operations. I think we'll find some deals here and there that work, but we're going to really focus on how do we expand our operating margins just through operations and work on our current deals and drive that as much as we can. So I I think some deals will come up just because people's debt's maturing and they can't refinance it or there's always a reason that someone needs to get out of a deal. It's just not going to be the active market. At least I don't see that activity returning for at least 12 months.
2: Yeah, for, for me, I think that a few things kind of stand out. Um, one being we are entering into an election year. Uh, the second being um, if you review Dalio's thoughts on uh, the changing world order um, I, I do believe that the internal conflict in the United States of America is going to have a bigger impact on commercial real estate than anybody's kind of giving it credence to at this point. Uh, and I think that's what's playing out in the office sector. It's getting political. And so when that happens, uh, landlords can get beat, beat up really quickly because you have no levers to pull. So I think that is another thing to be thinking about is the psychology of the American people and how are we doing from a unified standpoint and what's that, what impact is that going to have? For example, you know, what's happening in San Francisco or even New York city, uh, rent control, you know, I mean, that is a completely political, um, you know, uh, statement to make in regards to what that can impact real estate. So we have to be thinking about that as, as, uh, owners and sponsors over the next few years. And I think the election is going to be a a very tumultuous time as well. And so that's, that's going to cause even more fear in the market, which, which the biggest lender or the biggest capital stack provider in all these are the lenders. And I'm having conversations on new acquisitions with over 50 banks and it is not good. I mean, these are, this is good located retail. That's, that's, you know, 85% occupied and it is, Hey, we are, we are pencils down. We're not doing anything right now. So uh, I do think that that's going to cause quite a bit more of, of this uh, you know, transaction volume to be kind of where it's at. Um, so I do think that lending needs to be opened back up. And the only way that's going to happen is if rates drop. Um, so that's, that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, and then, yeah, I think that it's more of the same. You have to really take a step back in these types of periods of time and figure out who you want to be, what you want to focus on, because the decisions you make this year and probably the beginning of next year are going to impact the future. But if you're trying to make those decisions then and the buying opportunity is also then, uh, you're going to miss out on it. So what we're trying to do is just get ready, right? Just get ready for what we're focused on, what we learned over the last five or six years that we're not doing going forward and uh, how we're going to get to the next to the next phase. Uh, so those are all things that I think about quite a bit and I'm trying to understand. And I talked to a lot of folks about Um, which is no, no, you know, that's not an answer for the next 12 months, but I think it is, um, you know, I think those are topics that people don't necessarily speak about enough in the commercial real estate world, but we're seeing it kind of play out in the office, uh, sector right now. And so what's the next asset class that could be impacted, right? It's probably multifamily, um, in regards to rent control and and affordability and things like that. So that's a very scary one to, to be in. If you're in some of those States that, um, the, the government can come in and tell you what you have to do to to have residents in your, in your building. That's a, that's a tough spot to be at.
3: So I'll, I'll take two sides here. One is if you're an investor or a limited partner, if you take a step back, I think most of the world is falling apart. And if you just want to allocate capital towards something that you think will provide you with cash flow and long-term appreciation and have tax benefits, Investing into domestic private equity and domestic commercial real estate is a really good bet if you have a 10, 20-year time horizon. Don't overthink it. Don't try to hit timing. Don't worry about the market cycle. Come up with an annual allocation and allocate accordingly into things that you believe and and know and understand, right? But domestic private equity, domestic commercial real estate in the US, from an international perspective, when I talk to family offices that are in Singapore, Australia, and South America, this is still the most attractive place to allocate capital, period. From a GP perspective, I think everything that Dave and Logan said is exactly spot on. Don't force it. Don't try to make deals happen. Take some time to improve your operations where you think they need to be improved. And just wait. Because I do think there'll be some massive opportunity. And to Logan's point, I think the White House will use this bully pulpit to juice the economy running into the election year, and that rates will have to go down in Q4. If you look at the bond market, your bond guys are always smarter than the stock goons. They seem to think that there will be some cuts coming. That will be hugely accretive, I think, to the the market. So just hold on, stay alive, and, and wait for some of these deals to come to you. Guys, this has been a
0: great conversation. Uh, For everyone listening, we'll be back in two weeks with a very appropriate conversation after this one on how to get started as a commercial real estate syndicator, (laughs) Um, which after this conversation, I'm sure everybody's thinking, well, why would I ever want to do that in this market? But these guys have uh, had very successful careers, and and we've got a lot of information we can share with you. That'll be Monday at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll see you then. All of the links for uh, Brian, Dave, and Logan are in the description below. If you want to reach out to them, follow them, check out their their podcasts and their ventures. I highly recommend you do that because these guys are, are very admirable with what they're doing. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com.